This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Decided Excellence Catholic Media and their online initiative, primesoil.com. To find out what that's all about, go to primesoil.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Ed Condon. And Ed, my mouth hurts. My, I got my wisdom teeth out like two weeks ago, right? And my mouth still hurts. And I I didn't know that was going to be. Oh, yeah. It's going to be like that for a while. I mean, you, d- there were teeth in your head that are no longer there, right? Yes. So all the other teeth are, you know, it's like, it's like when you're on a sardine car train and then, you know, a bunch of people get off at a station. It's like suddenly everyone's got to move up and, you know, rearrange themselves to take up the space. Well, I thought, I mean, I just thought that it would hurt for a little while. And then it wouldn't, but my jaw like hurts every day for a little while. And I'm frustrated about that. I, I want my money back. Life is pain, Highness. <laughs> no, anyone who says otherwise is selling something. Dentistry often. That is the um, first noble truth, by the way. What, that life is pain? Yeah, isn't that the first noble truth of Buddhism? There are four noble truths. The first is all life is suffering. I don't know what the other ones are, and they're not... I'll true. be honest, I don't really want to read past the first one if that's true. There's no way of really knocking the edges off that. I, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. What is truth? Everything sucks. I have well, three I, other truths. I don't really think they're going to improve my life. If that's the, you know, accepting the first one, nothing else really matters, I don't think. We're not here to talk about Buddhism, Ed. We're here to talk about the synod on synodality. Uh, I suppose we have to, yeah. <laughs> See what I did there? I, yeah, well, life is, life is pain. <laughs> We're here to talk about the synod on synodality, Ed, because it is October, Ed, and there in Rome they are synoding and synodally, synodally synoding with the synodal best of them, and um, that is what it is. And uh, the pillar is headed to Rome next week to cover the synod on synodality, and uh, I'm looking forward, I think, to being there to sort of seeing what is um, in the sense of like, um, you know, one can get the – we get the um, – Vatican media briefings and we we get a Zoom link to the press conferences and we get the data breaches, but we don't until one is really there, one really can't absorb the zeitgeist of the thing, can can they? The sort of Zitzenleben of the of the of the Synod on Synodality. I would agree, although I think that's often a mercy. Um <laughs> I have and I think I've been pretty upfront about this. Absolutely no interest or enthusiasm for sitting in the back of a press room while people play synodal BS bingo from the podium and just give you the stock phrase that comes first to mind in response to any question. Um, however specific or reasoned or particular, the answer will be some identikit of jargon, it seems to me, which um, I'm, you know, I, whatever. I, I'm far more interested in terms of things that are happening in Rome and open to the press. I'm far more interested in the hearing of Libro Maloney's lawsuit against the Secretary of State. Oh, when are they taking, in the courtroom? Uh, next Wednesday. So are you planning to be there? That is my that is my ambition. I have been in touch with um, members of both sides of that particular case. Uh, people seem all revved up and fired to go. The battle lines are drawn. The arguments are clear. The judges are primed. And this is going to be... I think this is supposed to be the final session of argumentation. That the no, we carry on. It's the final session. 
just wanted you to get that out of your system. Okay, go ahead. Um, so no, I um, the lawyers for the Secretary of State are still arguing that prescription, that is the sort of you know statute of limitations, is run on this case. Maloney's legal team are arguing with documents that they interrupted the statute of limitations clock on this particular case twice in correspondence that was received and acknowledged by the Secretary of State, indeed the Secretary of State. Uh, so I don't think they're going to get very far with that argument. And uh, I think this is, they're expected to hear closing arguments and then the judges are going to go out to consider their verdict. I don't know how long they'll need, but that's the plan. So I'm, that's far more interesting to me than, you know, press conferences with the panel of pre-approved people who can only say the pre-approved things. Okay. So the, the defense will rest, so to speak, at the conclusion of the Libro Maloney arguments. Is that right? Well, no, because it's a lawsuit. Um, the way it is, is it's both parties. They're going to both speak that day. It's not, it's not a criminal prosecution. So it's not like the, def- the prosecution had their sessions and then the defense have their sessions there. Oh, sorry. So, 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 sorry. I'm sorry. I, I conflated that. What we're talking about right now is Libro Maloney, the former auditor general of the Vatican City, uh, excuse me, of the Apostolic See, who has filed suit for wrongful termination because he effectively alleges that he did his job and was subsequently accused of spying. Correct. Okay. And what do you? How do you think? How do you think this is going to play out? I had wondered if this was going to um, settle, um, but it hasn't settled. We had sort of thought that Rome might want to settle because we thought that Libro Maloney might open up his files. Um, you know, he said that he had a lot of files that were that were very, very significant on financial misconduct in the context of the Holy See. So what do you think is next here? I don't know. Um, I, I thought settlement was the obvious thing for the Secretary of State to go for here, but they haven't. And it it seems to me that the acceptance now is this decision is going to very possibly make someone look very, very bad. Like that's the only way it goes is either Libro Maloney and the reputation of his now deceased former deputy, um, Ferruccio Pinico, uh, either their reputations will be forever trashed and the court will say, no, you weren't hounded from office by former substitute of the secretary of state, Cardinal Angelo Becciu, who threatened you with criminal prosecution, accused you of spying on the or auditing, depending on your point of view, the private financial affairs of senior courier officials, as he publicly said he did. Um, that was all fine. You had it coming. You have no claim. Go away, which will ruin Maloney's reputation and probably stop him ever getting a job again. And it won't reflect terribly well on the Vatican to people who you know watch that whole situation play out. Or the court will find in favor of Maloney and the Secretary of State will basically be found to have behaved in a monstrous fashion to defeat financial accountability and reform and to have done so in a, I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't see how if, if, um, if Maloney's lawsuit succeeds, I, I, in a, in a reasonable world that would lead to criminal charges being filed. Like he would have proven that he, <laughs> that people abused their office to get rid of him, to stop him doing his job. And that would yeah. seem to me to be a prima facie criminal charged answer. But of course, lurking in the shadows of all this is my favorite soap opera character, Alessandro Didi, the promoter of justice for Vatican City, who who has registered an interest in this case and has reserved the right to criminally prosecute Maloney at the end of all of this. So it's I don't know how it's going to go, but I I get the sense that everybody 
initially wanted to settle, thought they were going to settle, and everyone actually said, no, you know what? We can't come up with a formula of settlement that leaves everybody happy. The court's going to have to do it. And actually, it would look like a stitch up if for the Secretary of State. Like they didn't, the Secretary of State now, I think, wants the court to, to give them a way out somehow, that they've worked out that they can't just throw cash at Maloney and ask him to go away, please. Um, which is ironic because if they'd actually done that in 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021, um, it probably would have worked. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that window is closed. So I have no idea how they're going to how they're going to judge this case. I have no idea what they're going to decide, but I'm very very interested. It could get spicy. It could get spicy, and uh, we will. What is the? I mean, we're we're accredited. You and I are accredited to cover the. Um, Synod on synodality and to go to all the synod on synodality stuff that media is allowed to go to, et cetera, et cetera. We'll talk about that later. But our, um, did you put in for courtroom credentials? Yeah, it's it, it's not showing on the Salastampas, or at least it wasn't the last time I looked, calendar of events, mm-hmm. but it is a it is a public session. And if you email um, accreditation or you know whatever the Italian word for accreditation is at salastampa.va and say, I want to go to this, they will accredit you. It's open yeah. to the public. Well, yeah. hopefully we'll get so, there. So that's yeah. be fun. But anyway, we're, we're not here to talk about that. I'm conscious. We're we're going to talk about the Senate, and I, I fully support that because it's been an interesting week in the Senate. We are going to talk about the Senate, but not yet. Not yet. I want to talk about processions because um, I don't know how much you followed this, but do you know you're throwing all your notes away, but I just yeah. want to talk about Forget processions. It. Once again, no point in doing prep. We'll talk. We've never done prep. Don't pretend. We've never done prep. Don't pretend. Um We'll talk about synods. It's totally fine. I will get there. But I want to talk about processions, right? You know why? They're actually related. A procession is a synodal event. What does synod mean, Ed? I think I'm I think the approved um, <laughs> answer now is walking together. Yeah, that- something like together on the way. Hodos, Hodos is a road. I learned that on Sunday school, a pillar of Bible study podcast. But Hodos is a road and sin is together like sin, this kind of sin. That's why in this. Together, like synthesis or on the road together, or, right? So on the road sort together, of Willie Nelson style, something like that. Yeah, just can't wait to get, just can't wait to get on the road again. Boy, that's going to be a synod headline for us at some point. Yeah, um, yeah but uh, but processions are therefore by their very nature synodal because they are uh, the the incarnational experience of being seen hodos with one another on the road together. And uh, this week in New York, I'm sure you've seen this appear on social media and all kinds of other things was one of the biggest Eucharistic processions that I'm aware of in like American history. I understand that this Eucharistic procession had some 5,000 Catholics um, processing through Midtown Manhattan for more than an hour, kind of like shutting down traffic and shutting down the streets surrounding St. Patrick's Cathedral. And um, I think that's quite cool. And I don't want to like, I don't want to not, I don't want to go into the Synod without remarking on the really kind of cool and uh, and 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 it seems to me um, in, encouraging example of ecclesial vitality, Christian vitality uh, in in New York City. I, I saw the pictures, or saw some pictures of it. I should say uh, I, I haven't given it my full and complete. But uh, all right, if you want to talk about that, I have some questions. Okay, but first I want to say this: you saw the pictures, but did you see the celebrity endorsement that is going to make you very excited? Is it A.C. Slater from Saved by the Bell? No, sir. Uh, wait, no, don't don't throw this away. Um, I'm going to be very sp- specifically me. You will be very excited about this celebrity endorsement that the New York City Eucharistic Procession got. 
uh, in the past couple of days. Gwen Stefani? Gwen Stefani. Shut the there front door. No, Gwen Stefani? There is no doubt about the fact that Gwen Stefani gave the Eucharistic procession Catholic. Gwen Stefani uh, gave the Eucharistic procession her encouragement. Now, you may say she's just a girl, but I think that she's an influential celebrity. And, um, you know, th- she seemed to think that this was much more than spider webs that they were walking through because Gwen Stefani this week called the Eucharistic procession beautiful and brave. And I thought, Ed, you'd be encouraged to know that. Encouraged is not nearly a big enough word. <laughs> I'm, I wish, why didn't you tell me this yesterday? My whole newsletter would have been Gwen <laughs> Stefani goes to New York. It, like what, how I am so. Actually, I just found this out just moments ago. I found out oh, that Gwen Stefani goes to thing. Man, this is so right in the middle of my personal bingo card. I, oh, I wish I had had this for the newsletter. <laughs> Uh, Tell me everything. What was she wearing when she said it? I don't know. I, I a source was uh, she in sort of you know civilian garb or was she was she you know sort of vintage? No doubt, Gwen Stefani, sort of you know Scott Rocker. A friend of the show, a friend of the Pillar Podcast, just texted me this this information, a sort of screenshot of Gwen Stefani calling this Eucharistic procession with five thousand Catholics across Midtown Manhattan, which happened last week, calling it beautiful and brave. And I I knew immediately that we would have to take a break from talking about the synod on synodality because I knew that you would want to know that Gwen Stefani, your celebrity crush, uh, has uh, has endorsed the Eucharistic procession. You're rolling your eyes, but No, I'm not rolling my eyes. I'm I, I am <laughs> half closing them while I while I savor this. I'm she is a Gwen beautiful and brave Stefani woman and I am so been, pleased. And Gwen Stefani has long been a person of um, professional and academic interest to us because you know as you as longtime readers know Gwen Stefani um, married her uh, uh, att- attempted marriage with her um, putative husband Clay Aiken or something like that some kind of country star what's his name uh, no no I can picture him um, he wears the flannel shirts he does wear uh, flannel shirts um, Chad Shelton Blake Shelton. Ah, okay. I always, I remember because he has the same first name as Blake Lively, who's married to the Wrexham guy, the guy from Van Wilder. Ah, okay. Yeah. So Gwen Stefani's husband has the same name as the guy from Van Wilder. This guy. is what people listen to the show for is our incredible <laughs> in-depth knowledge of pop culture. <laughs> I think that's right. But the guy from Van Wilder, you know, bought the soccer team and his I'm very wife- very familiar with the Welcome to Wrexham phenomenon. Yes. Yeah. And his wife was um, on Gossip Girl, which is a show that I really- Mrs. Flynn and I enjoyed the television program Gossip Girl. That that one passed me by. But can we get back to talking about Gwen Stefani, please? Yeah. So Gwen Stefani uh, said in some context that she was that she was encouraged by the Eucharistic procession that she regarded it as beautiful and brave. And we've had this interest in. Oh, sorry. Let me get back to this. We've had this interest in Gwen Stefani because she attempted marriage with her putative husband in uh, a, what purports to be a private chapel constructed on his ranch in Oklahoma, and we ourselves have. Been asked, but about it was this. it was it was a gesture of romance. It was a it was a chapel constructed by Chad by him for his, as a present for her. Because if I recall correctly, Stefani she is be Catholic, he not. I yeah, think Stefani is. is devout and and sincere Catholic by all accounts, and so much so that on his ranch in Oklahoma, he seemingly constructed for her a private chapel of of considerable beauty, as I understand it. I. That's. 
I, I want to see that chapel. But we have discussed in the past our uncertainty, if I recall where this landed, our uncertainty about whether or not they received permission from place, which would pertain to lyceity, but also whether or not... Oh, I thought we ran that to ground and we were assured by the local archdiocese that no such permission had been sought, let alone granted. Maybe I'm misremembering that. No, I think that's where it landed. I'm just, just sorry to know it. Well, I mean, the, the 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 impression I got, I mean, I'm reaching here because it's been a it's been a minute since we covered that story, but yeah. we did cover it with all of our usual rigor, yeah. um, because it's an important story. I got the impression, though, as I recall from the chancery in Oklahoma City, no, yeah, Oklahoma City, yeah, um, that that would be an open door to push on. I don't know what that means. Like you know, if they if they were to request chapel status that might be something that was you know granted i don't know i look if i don't recall and i don't want to when if you're listening just call me i I, we can work i don't want to suggest i'm a good canon lawyer i'll get you a i'll get you a tabernacle i I got a guy i'll get you a permission from place we presume that the that no permission had been granted but we do presume that the the priest or deacon who witnessed their marriage had the duly delegated faculties and all of that so if i recall correctly we did as far as we knew, established that she did not have permission from place, that the thing had not been established as a private chapel, but that doesn't necessarily call into the validity of the marriage because I, marriage I'm I'm I have moral certitude that that Gwen Stefani. Um, it makes me feel I, I don't feel comfortable just calling her Gwen. I shouldn't do that. I I want to address her <laughs> with respect. I um, I'm pretty confident that whatever they did was canonical. I, you. She, by all accounts, and this was reported because I think she put out a statement when it happened. Um, like she got an, an she she got a declaration pre- of nullity. That's right. She did go through. You the don't jump through those it. hoops to then just like you don't get a declaration of nullity yeah. and then say like, oh yeah, but we're also we're gonna um, we're just not, gonna do whatever we want. For right. This. Exactly. Yeah. yeah that's, I mean, sense. that would be an extremely unusual situation. It would. Yeah. Okay. So at any rate, Gwen Stefani called this Eucharist, who is a person who has been a subject of discussion on the show before. Uh, Called the called this Eucharistic procession beautiful and brave. I thought you'd want to know that, but I also think it's worth discussing because I think this Eucharistic procession, which has generated, you've probably seen some pushback from sort of some ca- Catholic sort of commentators who are saying, "Oh, this is just sort of you know uh, old white men parading around that won't attract young people to the church." I think that's crazy. Well, I who think called Gwen Stefani an old white man? No, no, no one called Gwen Stefani. I would an old fight man. them. Stop the Gwen Stefani. We're moving past it now. We're moving to the you, next You started thing. this. I didn't even know. We're moving past that to talk now about, that's my little gift to you for the day. We're moving past that to talk about the Eucharistic procession because I have seen some of the kind of Catholic commentaries who are commentators who've been criti- critical of the whole sort of Eucharistic revival project be critical of this as well and say that's not attractive to young people, et cetera, et cetera. That's like the very opposite of my experience with Eucharistic processions. I've my never ex- been to a Eucharistic procession that wasn't full of like, the older end of the spectrum is usually parents in their 30s. Yeah, that's exactly right. But kids love Eucharistic processions. I think the cool kids their, love it. The cool kids love it. I mean, the Eucharistic hipster kids love just, to carry the platform with the statue of the BVM on it. Yeah, they have mustaches. Just, <laughs> who have mustaches? The the cool kids who, you know, carry oh, the, yeah. the... Yeah. Yeah, and it reminds Sometimes them... Sometimes they call Reservoir the, Dogs and they're in black suits with like matching blue ties and stuff. It's fun for the whole family. Who doesn't you know love a Eucharistic procession? You know, it's interesting. Usually on this show, I'm the guy who's like sort of bouncing thematically all over the place and you're the guy sort of trying to land me. I don't know if you're playing a sort of um, best served cold 
game or what, but um, it is it is somewhat disorienting. I must admit. Oh, I find it hard to keep your train of thought. <laughs> okay, so um, I think well of Eucharistic processions, and I think that they demonstrate the vitality of the life of the church, and I think the critics of them. I, I wonder what they want. Like, I there's a commentator, a guy who I think sometimes writes for Commonweal. I forget his name now. Who has been posting online like, this is just yeah, aging white men, and this won't attract young people to the church, and those kinds of things. But one wonders what kind of what kind of thing such a person believes would be attractive to people, because it seems to me that yeah, Eucharistic processions cut across all kinds of demographics in the church because they're like beautiful and holy and also like this sort of unique thing that is definitional of Catholic culture and feels like being a part of something. And it seems to me that all kinds of Catholics, for the most part, would enjoy that. Now, I know there have been, you know, we reported last year, for example, that Cardinal Blaise Supich in the Archdiocese of Chicago had imposed rules on Eucharistic pilgrims for the Eucharistic pilgrimage, that they would carry the Blessed Sacrament during the next year's Eucharistic pilgrimage in a ciborium rather than in a monstrance, although that, you know, I don't know if that has ended up um, changing or not in the, you know, in the time since we reported that. But um, there have been lots of criticisms of sort of Eucharistic adoration from some corners amid the Eucharistic revival. But I just find, it just seems to me that Eucharistic processions are so emblematic of Catholic culture in every corner of the world that um, the criticism of them seems like, sour and out of touch rather than, you know, uh, well, it's a criticism that I've only ever seen made ironically by aging white males. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, that might be part of it. I, you know, well, this isn't going to attract the young people. They want, they want David Haas hymns uh, and, and they, and they want to, they want some, some paint by numbers felt banners. That's what the cool kids want. <laughs> or, this- or you go the other way. And the other thing there's what they want is, and I've seen this not in, no, I actually saw this in a Catholic church in Germany. In fact, I, was it a church or was it a cathedral? Like it was a huge church, um, but I, I saw it in in Germany in one of the parishes we stopped along on for World Youth Day with the group I was traveling with to Cologne, mm-hmm. and they had an event which the priest told us about proudly, uh, which was God ist ein DJ, in which what? they literally held an actual rave what? in the church. With strobe sure lighting, and dry eyes, and a DJ. No, you must have been in an Anglican church. No, no, no. This is a German Catholic church in Bavaria. I think it was in Bavaria. I don't know. I'll go back and check my notes one of these days. But no, this this was an actual German church. Like, and it was huge. It was a beautiful old church, vaulted ceilings. You know, this was this was not a recent construct. Like, this was an historical church. And the, like, he showed us the flyer. God is dying, DJ. This was the, that's what they want, JD. That's what they think is going to attract the kids. And, you know? Yeah. You don't like it when I presume bad faith or bad no, intentions I don't. in people. No. And so I'm, I, I'm not going to do that now because I haven't been paying attention to the online pushback to what I've only experienced as the very nice pictures of a very lovely looking Eucharistic procession in front of Radio City Music Hall, which seemed lovely to me. Uh, I'm taking you at your word that there is such pushback. I feel like, you know, when you see like a champagne colored uh, town car. Supernova in the sky? No, champagne colored um, town car in the street in front of you. 
I, you don't have to Google it. I was aware of the Oasis reference. Um, what would I be Googling? Do you I don't know. I thought you were going to Google more of Oasis's Be Here Now or Definitely Maybe album to like continue making more Oasis you don't references think that I until have, I got one. You don't think I have a rich cache of Oasis lyrics ready to insert into conversation just you, you probably from do. the old noggin? Of course you do. I mean, um, Ed, how many special people change? I, <laughs> do, do you want to take a break and talk about why Oasis were a bad band? Because I no, will. I don't want to hear your Oasis stuff. I know you have strong feelings about Oasis. I don't understand. I mean, they're, I, don't they're, I don't get me wrong. Really I lived through Britpop. I was there. I, I just they, they were. I was blur. I was blur on that particular divide. Anyway, yeah. this is Sally sp- can wait. Ed. Oh, I just oh shoot! If only we were talking. There's a fantastic blur transition to the synod and synodality that I ah. Yeah, just it, I watched it fly right by. Anyway, not the point. Um, so I'm taking you at your word that this criticism is happening, but like seeing a champagne late model sedan or town car sort of meandering across lanes in front of you in traffic, like you, I know who these people are before ever I see them. Like I can tell you what everything does that about. Mean? What is the champagne car reference? I don't understand what you're. Oh, talking. you do, you haven't noticed that the the cars that are driven by little ladies who can't see over the steering wheel and are all over the road and like taking chunks out of people's wing mirrors on the way by and everything like they all drive champagne colored town cars or sedans no maybe that's like that's the from, color no maybe that's just in england no I've, it's exclusively in the states I, I didn't drive in the uk it's too expensive anyway um i can i can picture exactly who it is is making these these kinds of criticisms and i mean again taking as i know your stance of you shouldn't assume malice or bad faith on, on, on the part of people i won't but I don't know what they want, but it seems to me that in all the talk of, oh, well, the church isn't attracting young people with this, um, they don't seem to have anything to offer. The, the, the offer seems to, if you want to attract young people, you just have to, you know, quote unquote, meet them where they are, which means turn the church into a, into a rave. Like they like, they like raves. So let's, let's turn the church into a rave. They like, I, I don't know. What are they? What, what are the kids? I, I like, you want memes? We'll have a we'll have a meme conference. I you know, they, there's an argument that indeed one thing that has been said recently is they like struggle sessions. Let's have a two year global international struggle session about the state of the church. Is my point? Like it's there's no content. There's no here's the thing we want to bring you. There's no sense of the church's mission. There's no sense of the church's manifestation of the divine. There's no sense that the church is. Sacrament of salvation is a, as Pope Francis likes to call, it, a field hospital for the wounded. It's not. There's no recognition that people are even hurt or sick. It's like, well, they're fine over there doing their thing. We just really wish they'd come over here and do their thing, and and kind of be called Catholic. Maybe. I mean, the label Catholic isn't actually all that important. We just, you know, maybe they could just sit next to us on uh, on a podium and, you know. Tell me that I'm cool. Are we still talking about the Eucharistic procession in New York? I'm I'm talking about the people who criticize it. And you were saying, what sort of person, why would you criticize it? What manner of critic is this? Yeah, what manner of critic is this? What do they want? Because Eucharistic processions, the criticism of them is they want to attract young people, but in fact, they do. Um, you know, what is it that they think they're pitching to? And I said, I don't think they're pitching anything. I think they're, they don't like things that have an obvious content of the faith. And they don't like seeing people making a public manifestation of the faith. They don't like cultural signifiers that are immediately identifiable as Catholic. They think all of that is kind of icky. And I mean, I think it's a tragedy. I think it it speaks to a sad and lonely life they must be leading. But no, I mean, I think that's what it's about is they, they don't, they don't like the, they don't like Catholicism that much. I'm not saying they don't like God. I'm not saying they don't like 
faith or they don't have faith or anything. I'm saying they don't like Catholicism that much, it seems to me. Hmm. I'll have to think about that. Can I ask questions about this Eucharistic procession? I don't know very much about it, but sure. Okay. What was it in aid of? Because I know it was with the the Bible in a year guy. What was it in aid of? Yeah. I mean, what, what, why? What was it? Uh, was it for why a feast? Why were they having it? Ah. I, I don't know. Um, it's a good question. I don't know the answer to it. I, as I say, I know very little about it. I have wondered about it because it, it was organized actually by the Napa Institute, you know, which kind of surprised me. Um, and, you know, I, I would say that it seems to me probably the best thing the Napa Institute has ever done, that if the Napa Institute sort of, um, if the Napa Institute's principal apostolate will be to organize Eucharistic processions around the country, I think that's very cool. That seems beats to the heck out of political rallies. It seems to me to be very cool. It certainly would beat the heck out of political rallies, to be sure. So I thought that was very cool. Um, I had wondered initially. I don't know what the connection of it was to the Archdiocese of New York, to the parishes, the territorial parishes through which it passed. You know, I think it is important. Um, it was preceded by a mass in St. Patrick's Cathedral. And so I, I presume in a certain sense it was also an apostolate of the cathedral. I think it is important when Eucharistic processions take place. One of the things that I really like, let me say this, one of the things that I think is very cool about the Eucharistic pilgrimages that will happen next year, the the thing which really made me think this is cool and I like what this is doing, is that those pilgrimages that, you know, those pilgrimages from the four places. Um, yeah. My, um, the sort uh, of Minnesota, compass point departures. Yeah, or Minnesota, Texas, I think New York and California. Well, the thing that made me think these are really cool is that they're effectively at pilgrimages from parish to parish and in a certain way even of parish to parish because that you have these you know I went on the little one um the the sort of practice one across Indiana um back in July or whatever that was that's when I um uh, hurt my ankle, which still hurts. Broke your it, ankle. It still hurts when it's raining. I should probably see a doctor. But I your went ankle on the, hurts. Your teeth hurt. Your yes, my elbow uh, has been hurting. Well, that's from all the pickleball. Uh, that you, you're assuming I play much much more pickleball than I do. You um, play much more pickleball than I do is what I'm okay, saying. Okay. Well, anyhow, um, what struck me about those was about that that pilgrimage in Indiana, which was sort of forming the template for the pilgrimages across the country, is that um, yes, there are these um, permanent what they call the permanent pilgrims or some of the perpetual pilgrims or something like that. The people who are the sort of core team of pilgriming, and I think you, I think they just recently publicized the application so that young people can apply to be on the teams of perpetual pilgrims and all that. But um, yes, there are those. And then there's a sort of chaplain who travels with them. And I think they've selected the chaplains for next year, priest chaplains who will travel with them and carry the monstrance and those special harnesses and all that. But um, but the pilgrims stay um, with parishioners. They pilgrim each day from parish to parish. Like they begin at a parish and they end at a parish with Mass on one side and adoration on the other, or mass and adoration on one side and evening prayer on the other, or whatever it is. They pilgrim from the parishes, and they the invitation is for the people who belong to particular parishes along the way to become like the core of the walking that day. So that the it seems to me that the the spirituality of the thing is that these core pilgrims, if you want to call them that, are in a certain way almost facilitating a pilgrimage of the parishioners. They become like the, 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 yeah, the facilitators of a day long Eucharistic pilgrimage for, um, for parishioners, at least when this thing is sort of at its best, I think that's, that's the way that it will end up playing out. And I think that's very cool because 
it seems to me that in one's parish is the place where pilgrimage ought to begin. It is very good to go and do the Camino or make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land when it's a good time to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land or whatever. But the notion of like bearing the body of Christ across one's own portion of the people of God, one's own parish, strikes me as being really spiritually significant, that that the steps that one takes on a pilgrimage in a certain way, pour, a Eucharistic procession, in a certain way kind of pour out the body of Christ, uh, pour out the blood of Christ into the soil of the place, that they have this capacity, I think, to sanctify a place, to, to sow seeds of grace, really, in a place. And to do that in one's own parish strikes me as being beautiful. So when I first sort of saw this New York thing, I really hoped that it was connected to the parishes through which it passed. Now, I think the territory, most of that Midtown territory is probably the territory of the Cathedral Parish of the of the Archdiocese, and so probably it did fulfill that thing. And knowing that, which was the first, which was the thing I thought, boy, I hope this is connected to the particular, to the local church in which it operates. Um, I'm struck by just um, how much potential that is. I, I've said before, and I, I mean it, I think those Eucharistic um, walking pilgrimages next year, those processional pilgrimages have more potential to sow the sort of spiritual seeds of transformation in this country than does the event in Indiana, which I think will be very cool, good speakers, blah, 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 you know, great. For people who can go, I think that's great. But I think that walking pilgrimage has a kind of, um, could have a kind of spiritual resonance that is that is, that is uh, perduring. I think it's very likely. I mean, Pilgrimage is, um, is insanely trite, but it, it's also true. Pilgrimages are far more about the journey than the arrival. Like that's why you take seen hodos, if you will. Indeed, indeed. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. This week's episode is sponsored by Decided Excellence Catholic Media and their online initiative PrimeSoil.com. You may recall that Decided Excellence is a print magazine company that partners with parishes all over the country to produce their own magazines for communicating and evangelizing in their local community. And since they've started sponsoring us here at the Pillar Podcast, Decided Excellence has initiated magazines and parishes in Nashville, Pittsburgh, parts of Florida, Massachusetts, and any parish that partners with Decided Excellence has the opportunity to blend their own local original content with Decided Excellence's national contributors from Word on Fire, Relevant Radio, Dr. Scott Hahn, Ascension Press, huge back catalog. So you can really, you know, you can make the content suit the audience that you want to reach. And that audience is, after all, your local parish. So you can find out more about that at decidedexcellence.com slash parish. But, Ed, you know, the other thing about Decided Excellence is that parishes also have access to articles on Decided Excellence's online initiative called primesoil.com. That's primesoil.com. What's primesoil.com, you ask? Well, it's not a place to buy manure. Instead, inspired by the parable of the sower, primesoil.com is named after the good ground in which the word of God can grow and bear fruit. As an overflow of Decided Excellence's mission to evangelize, primesoil.com is another space on the internet where Catholics can visit to nurture their spiritual life um, because Decided Excellence has gathered Catholic men and women from all walks of life to share about their own experiences of allowing the word of God to bear fruit in their life. New content is released almost every day and includes reflections on the Sunday gospel from a team of um, priests and deacons, catechetical explanations, articles from lady who are striving to live an authentic Catholic life. You should check out primesoil.com, and if you like what you see, you can subscribe. Subscription is free, Decided Excellence Catholic Media Notes, which means you can save all your subscription money in your budget for the pillar. I love these guys. They are this this is this is the kind of, you know, 
good, honest Catholic company that we need more of here. But but there is, in fact, more. There's more. Decided Excellence is a premium sponsor of the National Eucharistic Congress. Very much on topic for what we're talking about today, in fact. Taking place in Indianapolis next July, all of Decided Excellence's magazines nationwide have exclusive content from the Eucharistic Revival. In addition, Decided Excellence is sponsoring a breakout session at the Congress. They're presenting the Eucharistic Timeline, which is a primesoil.com project, no manure involved. The Eucharistic Timeline will use sacred scripture, sacred art, and the testimony of the saints to enter into the mystery of the Eucharist. The breakout will take uh, a spiritual journey through time, examining key moments that God has used uh, to reveal the truth about the body of Christ in the Eucharist. If you have the privilege of attending the National Eucharistic Congress, and I hope a lot of you do, next year, consider signing up for the Eucharistic Timeline Breakout Session. Brought to you by primesoil.com. Prime soil. Do you think that's a good little jingle for me? Well, you're not you're not giving them anything. You're just saying the name. You gotta you gotta. But it's you like, gotta, um, it's I was meant to homage Priceline. Prime soil. Um, no manure involved. <laughs> and that's noble, folks. There you go. <laughs> that should be our thing. Primesoil.com. And that's noble. I tell you. We should be we should be old timey carnival barkers. By the way, we're back now, but do, we should be old timey carnival barkers, don't you think? According to many people, we are effectively old timey carnival barkers, JD. That is how we're treated by many people. My children's favorite movie right now is uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and um, oh, that's a dark film. It is. Did you just mouth "I love you"? Yeah, not to you. Oh, my wife just brought me a big bag of espresso beans covered in dark chocolate. Oh, that's nice. Hold them up. That's how I. It's how I keep myself so peppy while we do these <laughs> you really shows. are in a mood anyway uh my children's favorite movie right now is chitty chitty bang bang and you know there's that scene um where uh dick van dyke is carnival barking for that bicycle haircut machine that he has and then he has to run away he cuts a man's hair but the machine catches his head on fire and then he has to run away and that gives a good segue for a dick a wonderful actually a delightful dick van dyke dancing uh, routine can I be honest? Yeah. I'm not much of a Dick Van Dyke fan. You're kidding me. No. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying he's a bad guy. Like, I, I get it that, you know, by all accounts, Dick Van Dyke is a stand-up guy in an industry that's full of jerks. I, he's just not my... Like, I've never found him funny. Doesn't it... Uh, there's no other way to say this. Doesn't it make you happy to watch him dance? No. Dick Van Dyke is a delightful... Oh, you I, don't like I, You Dick know what Van I feel Dyke. like when I watch Dick Van Dyke dance? Or sing, for that matter. It's it's like when, you know, you're over at a friend's house and their eight-year-old comes out and, like, wants to do a little <laughs> something for you. Like, I, 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 got, I learned a new song on my saxophone. And you're like, oh, okay. And you're like, yeah, no, sure. That's great. And you watch them and you're kind of sitting there like, oh, oh you're going to do the third verse, too. Okay. <laughs> great. That, you- that's That's amazing. Wow. You're gonna you're gonna make your whole life off of that, man. Go for it. No, yeah, I, you, it's just not my thing. I like him. I I don't want to discourage Dick Van Dyke, but um, it's just not my thing. Yeah, you hate um, you hate um, Mary Poppins because you don't like Dick Van Dyke's um, Cockney accent, and I feel like that probably has colored everything else that you feel about Dick Van Dyke. That's possible. I mean, I don't hate Mary Poppins as a film. I mean, Dick Van Dyke's accent is the second worst attempt at a British accent in the whole of cinematic history. And 
I mean, it's causes belly for a lot of people, but I, I don't know. Like I used to, like as a kid, I'd watch the Dick Van Dyke show on whatever yeah. that station was. And, you know, I just, I didn't get it. Like, it's just, I mean, I understood Mary Tyler Moore was cool. I didn't really understand why I thought she was cool as an eight year old or whatever it was, but you know, I understood that these homies dissing my girl. Sorry. Um, I was just thinking about Mary Tyler Moore. Ah, fair enough. So no, I, sorry. I've completely taken you off down another cul-de-sac and I apologize. Um, so your kids really like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which is straight up nightmare fuel. This was that. This was an aside. My kids like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. There's that great scene where Dick Van Dyke is a carnival marker. The guy's hair catches on fire. And then Dick Van Dyke does a really, really great, wonderful, fun, delightful dance routine. He does a number. I mean, in an old school kind of sense, he just does a great number with a – he's got a, pole, a cane and some other dancers and everything. It's great. Neither here nor there. But as long as we're talking about Carnival Barker said, I do think we should probably talk a little bit about the synod on synodality. Um, you know, synod, as you probably know, means seen hodos along along the way. And the synod on synodality is well along the way in Rome. You look like you want to say something. No, no. I'm I'm just I'm putting myself in the frame of mind I need to in which I need to be to to discuss with sobriety and seriousness. Um, the Synod on Synodality. The Synod on Synodality ongoing. is well along the way. And uh, we, you know, it, this is uh, this is effectively um, a meeting aimed at, uh, at which um, several hundred people have either been invited by the Roman pontiff or elected to participate by their national Episcopal conferences. And this is the sort of, this is the beginning of the end, really, um, because the Synod on Synodality began like uh, two years ago with um, these meetings in parishes all around the world in which people were invited to share their perspective on how the church can become more synodal, which means to spend more time in sort of prayerful discernment of the will of God. Um, in Almost 2% of another. them did. Uh, very few people participated um, in this country and in many others. Um, and then the Synod on Synodality segue to diocesan phases in which relatively few numbers of practicing Catholics participated. And then the Synod on Synodality um, moved on to the... Um, to sort of national synthesis reports and then a sort of what was called a continental session where um, the groupings, small groups from a couple of different countries, in our case, just North, just the United States and Canada, but small groups from a couple of different countries got together and talked about this, this fundamental question of how the church would, can, can do something which the Pope thinks is, is critically important, um, namely to embrace a, a style of living in the church, which, um, which we there don't more, know what it means yet, because which, that's why we're having I, I don't the process. Think that's quite true. In which there is more centrally a place. This is what the stated objective of the thing. In which there is more centrally a place for this sense of synodality, which means prayerful discernment together of the will of God. Presumably, before deliberative discernment of the will of God from a person in ecclesiastical authority, but a sort of a precursor to that is the coming together of the community for sort of prayerful discernment. Now. The Synod on Synodality has gone in, as we know, a million different directions um, because many people have tried to use it to suggest doctrinal change or to suggest a de-emphasis on the Church's uh, um, teaching, even on sort of the notion of objective morality itself. And now we're in it. Right now, um, groups are meeting every day in Paul VI Hall in the, Va in the Vatican City State at these roundtables to talk about... Um, uh, um, issues that have come up in the sort of prior consultative sessions. And then their main task is to fill out worksheets, to sort of sit at a table, talk for two days and to fill out worksheets. And uh, then to present those worksheets to each other with the goal of sort of presenting finally, by the end of this month, a report to the Pope, which will be used as a bit 
foundational basis for them to have more discussions about this topic next year. I, I've been on this retreat. <laughs> I didn't care for it. <laughs> well, it's funny that you say that um, because, you know, one of the things that I've been struck by is the number of people who uh, at the Synod on Synodality who have reported to the media or have posted on social media the kind of collegial atmosphere they've found. They've said, even amid disagreement, this has been an experience of kind of effective collegiality, of, kind of getting along with each other and experiencing some kind of communion with another, one another, and we're grateful for it in that sense. But uh, at the same time, um, there have been a lot of voices outside the Synod which have said, look, this thing is sort of predetermined. This thing is meant to give the Pope sort of a set of predetermined recommendations, which will allow him to advance an agenda, which people think would be um, downplay the Church's doc, you know, doctrinal teachings on sexuality and other things. And um, I have not known quite what to think about that. But I will say um, what I have been thinking about in the past week and what has emerged to me in the past week is that framing is everything. The way the discussions inside the meeting are being are being framed by the organizers of this thing um, is far more influential than I think people might think about or realize without um, without kind of examining the documents. Because Ed, the task of the people at the tables is to sit and talk about a set of questions and then to provide answers to a set of questions, and those answers are formulated into reports, which are then formulated into another report, which is forwarded to the Pope in order to create another report. But the power of asking the questions is everything. And that is the place where I think if people would say, we think there's a bias or a predetermined outcome, the questions are really interesting. Here are some of the questions that synod delegates are working on right now. What should be done so a synodal church is an all-ministerial missionary church? Uh, what should be done so a synodal church is also an all-ministerial missionary church? Now, I don't exactly know what the phrase all ministerial means there, but I do know this. Embedded in that question is a presumption. A synodal church should be an all ministerial missionary church. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bag of a question, right? Um, well, it, it's the, the, the actual text, all ministerial is in quotation marks, and I'd be eager to know whom, who is being quoted there. Yeah, I think the working, do I think the, 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 the prior, the, the working document, and, and I think we can, the worksheets that kind of themselves contain some background from the document. But this notion, um, what should be done so a synodal church is also an all-ministerial missionary church, contains within the presumption that a synodal church should be something called an all-ministerial missionary church, which presumably means every person has a ministry in the, co in the context of missionary, which is a different way of talking about our common apostolate, our shared vocations to holiness, our shared sort of membership in the body of Christ having many parts. Um, because this notion of ministry is usually tied traditionally to sort of liturgical ministry or official ecclesiastical ministry. So it seems embedded in this question is a particular vision of the participation of laity in the role of a missionary church, which if one says, I'm not so sure about that, one almost has to push back. The question is not open-ended, but presumptuous. And I find that to be the point where people really could say, hey, this is where we think that the thumb is on the scale. Sure. I mean, the the best answer to many questions is often I don't accept the premise of the question. Right, exactly. And the, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not saying I don't accept the premise of this question. I'm just saying I don't understand the premise of this question. Right. I don't understand what an all ministerial church is. It, it sounds kind of close to, you know, sort of participation trophy theology. It's like everyone's got to have a ministry. Every, you know, right, everyone's right, special. Right. Everyone's, it's like, no, there's a common 
dignity in baptism, there's the universal call to holiness and the great mandate from Christ to all members of the church to go and make disciples of all nations. Is is that what we're talking about? Or are, are we talking about sort of, to use the sort of, you know, dynamic corporate speak catchphrase that I know is beloved of synodal organizers? Are we looking to activate the sort of, you know, uh, the dynamic ministerial potential of all Christians? Like, okay. I don't, I don't care for that way of talking about things, but I, I can understand what we're trying to get at there. But I mean, if this is about everyone's got to be a lector, an acolyte, a deacon, a priest, a porter, a uh, verger, or wh- whatever, well, that's just kind of weird. Like you, membership of the body of Christ and the, the missionary mandate and potential of every Christian doesn't require a business card. But here's you don't my need point. A title. If you- if you wanted to say that, let's say you were in a small group, you were nominated or selected to be a participant in the Synod on Synodality, which doesn't seem to me especially likely, but let's say it happened, and you were in a small group, and you wanted to say that. To do it, you would have to face the often uncomfortable social situation of saying, well, I'm not so sure that this goal of an all-ministerial church, missionary church, is the right goal. And for many people, that like um, that's difficult, right? They're, they're so, so socially anxious about making waves. They, they want to answer the question right. that's asked about well, them. And so the way that the sin is actually being conducted is you don't even have the freedom to discuss it with your table because say you're on a table and you're discussing these questions and you say, I don't think that I particularly like the way this question is phrased or framed and it makes me uncomfortable for it. You actually have non-voting, what they're calling synodal facilitators, which are sort of like the camp counselor kids the, for the, the synodal sector. Yeah, yeah. Who you know? You've got a sort of table monitor who sort of then will lean over your shoulder and say, "Well, you're wrong. That's not what." Well, I'm it not means. sure about that. I don't. Uh, do you, are you? Do you? I, I think there's an unspoken social pressure. I'm not aware that that's the how the facilitators do things. I, do you? Have I any, would be shocked if the role of the synodal facilitator, I mean, if a member that, of the synod, isn't questioning that? the validity of the question or the phrasing of the question to jump in and reassure the table that no, no, the question is fine and right, and you should. Engage I, I don't want to presume that. I I know you do. And I, I grant that that's a possibility, but I, I'm not so sure. I think it may be that if a person says, I don't accept the premise of the question, that the person dutifully writes it down and says, at least one person didn't accept the, the, the premise of the question. But oh, I, I what think I, their name will be written down for sure. <laughs> what I know, I don't think that's true. But what I know is that it just, it, when a question makes a presumption, instead of being an open-ended question, this is true when we interview people. I mean, we know this from journalism. When a question um, makes a presumption instead of being an open-ended question, many people find it sort of psychologically or sociologically difficult to imagine an answer outside of, or proffer an answer especially, outside of the framework of the of the presumption. And so that's where I think if people want to say the thumbs on the scale. Let me give you an, another example that I found striking. This is from the first week of the, of the discussion. Um, how can we grow? The, how can, there, this one's sort of talking about people's experiences of the local synods and stuff. How can we, the church, grow in a synodal style of liturgical celebration, which highlights the distinctive contribution of all participants, starting from the variety of vocations, charisms, and ministries they bear? And what's the presumption of that question? Oh, where to begin? First of all, that we need to grow liturgically. <laughs> but also it, that it's also that there that it is a good thing. The presumption is it is a good thing that the church should have something called a synodal style of liturgical celebration, and that synodality should be a defining attribute of, of our liturgical experience, which is actually not about our experience, but about the worship of God. Again, a person who wants to say that 
uh, I'm not so sure that the church should have a synodal style of liturgical celebration. I think we should have a sacrificial style of liturgical celebration. They well, have and to then overcome... there's another thing that there was buried in there that, I, that sort of said, well, say it again. Uh, how can we grow in a synodal style of liturgical celebration, which highlights the distinctive contribution of all participants, starting okay, from the right? Okay, that's, that's the other thing. All the participants in liturgy do not make a distinctive contribution. That's just false. When, when you're attending Mass, there is the celebrant and there is the assembly. A member of the assembly does not make a distinctive contribution. In fact, if they are making a distinctive contribution, the men in blue blazers should come up, tap them nicely on the shoulder, and invite them to settle down a little bit. They, they do have a role to play, right? They they have they to have offer a role, full active but it's conscious a, participation, and that's a, no, no, full and active conscious. But it's not distinctive. Of offering it is as a body. It cannot, it, yeah, it's, at, it's one. It's corporate, and two, it's interior, right? My role in mass is, is fundamentally the most important thing I do in mass is interior. I, but this is what I mean about participation trophy ecclesiology: is these people are just like, oh well, you know, everyone's got to be unique. Everyone's, you know, everyone's got to be their own little snowflake. And they say, like, no, we can be the body of Christ together. That's okay. We can be part of a whole. Right. So I think that's fine. I think you're right that that the vocation of the laity in the mass is to offer the sacrifice of their life. Someone said to me recently to offer the whole of creation over which we have dominion along with the priest offering the Eucharistic sacrifice. I think that's beautiful and profound, but that is undercut by a sort of thing that says we each have, I, it seems to me that can be undercut by a thing that says we each have a distinctive role to offer in accord with our charisms, et cetera, et cetera, in which we conflate activity with active participation. And I think you're right. That's embedded in this question. And so the person who holds that theological position, which you hold and which I hold, would have to also have the constitution, the kind of constitution by which they feel comfortable saying, you know, I just don't think that's what the church should be doing. And that's hard. So the thumb is on the scale, because even if a majority of people feel that way, if they don't know everyone else feels that way, and they don't want to make waves, and they're sort of like, let me just answer the question that's answered. I don't want to make a thing. You know, then there can be this presumption can sort of carry the day to seem to have more support than, than it can. That's why it's important to ask people open-ended questions instead of presumptuous questions. And I'm struck when I examined some of these today and over the past few days, I, I've really been struck by the way in which that that is the place, it's selection bias, um, that is the place in which the framing can have a sort of pre-influence pre on the outcome. I, well, I, I had been very is, skeptical of people saying it's predetermined because I don't think that in some smoke-filled room they already wrote the, the document. But this is a different kind of yeah. – I, I might write about this, actually. This is a different kind of predetermination. It is. And it's you're exactly right that this is sort of nudge theory and marketing 101, that how right. you frame the question will do. It's, it's focus group ecclesiology. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, you put the people in the room and you you guide them towards the answer you would like, or at least guide the conversation in the direction that you would like it to go. And you will arrive, not necessarily at a scripted outcome, but you can you can pick the flavor and the volume more or less. Yeah, um, that's right. So that'll be interesting. Yeah, I I I I I'll be interested to see as the other modules come out um, what whether these questions continue to be this way and and. And again, just how that impacts the, the way in which people participate to the extent that we can find out. Now, we should talk about um, confidentiality at the uh, Synod on Synodality, should we not? We should. We're, Why we're, is that a topic to discuss, Edward? Well, because they're not very good at it. <laughs> Whatever do you mean? Well, so they've been making it very clear, and by they I mean the synodal or the, the synod, the permanent secretariat of the Synod of Bishops, which is running this particular event, which is being billed as an ordinary general session of the Synod of Bishops, even though it is not 
bishops who are meeting in synod. Uh, and they've been very hot on confidentiality about all of this. They have, and so has Pope Francis. He has endorsed this vision of a of a synod behind closed doors. That unlike all previous meetings of the synod of bishops, the responses of the working groups, the who's in what team, who's talking about what, is not released. That members of the synod, participants in the synod, are not free to speak to the media. They are not free to release the texts of their addresses to the synodal assembly if they make them. That everything is to be tightly controlled and administered by the synodal secretariat's communications team, and you know that's that's a huge change. Um, and, and they they're very good at controlling the flow of information in the press room, in as much as they don't tell journalists anything, and they just kind of you know make these stock answers that you know don't don't say one thing or the other. They just say you know can you tell us about was this discussed in this room? Maybe, you know, well, was 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 there debate about this particularly controversial point that members of the Senate have been talking about on the way here? Well, yeah, some people talked about that. Some were for it. Some were against it. You know, that that, that those are the kind of answers we've been getting, um, interspersed with you know, well, of course, whatever we're talking about, it's the Holy Spirit that's actually talking and, and things like that. Um, but when I say they're not very good at it, it's because they've they've actually been collecting and hosting and posting all of the documents for the session of the synod uh, on a on an unsecured open cloud server which anyone can look at can look at all the files absolutely everything all the Just, reports if you, what that means is if you, if you don't know those technology terms um, the synod had stored the synod office the synod secretary office had stored all of their documents and files, all the circular minority reports, all the rosters, everything, on uh, on an online kind of um, an online hard drive, like a Google Drive, but not a Google Drive, um, which um, you didn't need a password to log into or anything else. You just needed the URL, and if you had the URL, the whole drive was your um, Huckleberry. Yeah, it wasn't That's, even a complicated <laughs> URL. <laughs> no, it wasn't even a complicated. It so was we like secretsynoddoc.org or something no, like that. <laughs> So we found that we found that out on Friday, and uh, Thursday, Thursday. Oh, today's Friday. That's right. Oh, boy, it's been a week. Uh, we found that out on Thursday, um, and we contacted uh, the. Uh, no, we contacted Lake. We found out at night. We told we contacted the um, communications to Castry immediately, both to let them know and to ask them for comment. But we reported on this data breach because we regarded it as a huge story that in the midst of, or a big and important story, a kind of reflection on the reality of the synod, that as confidentiality is so strongly emphasized in a way that is unprecedented relative to prior synods, that the synod secretariat office itself has not demonstrated um, care with these things which they say that people are not permitted to have information about or access to in in, in contravention of even paolo ruffini who's on the synodal communications panel i think they're calling committee politburo i don't know um but he's also the prefect of the dicastery for communications was asked um i think it was yesterday i think it was thursday it was asked you know well can we know the breakdown by member of the small working groups just so we can see who's talking about what question and who's working together and you know are the are the teams sort of a, a, a what look to be a likely mix of um, backgrounds and points of view, or are people sort of hived off in sort of well that's the conservative table over there and that's the 
that's the progressive table over there and that's the you know new evangelization crowd over there and you know, and Rafini said I don't have access to that kind of information and I'm not willing to ask for it to give it to journalists right so right. assuming all, every clause of that sentence is true stuff that's being held from the director of Vatican communications and a prominent synodal participant in his own right a, a prefect of a caster you can't have a higher yeah. rank you actually can't have a higher rank other than pope in the organizational structure of the of the Holy See. Right. Um, so he he allegedly doesn't have access to this stuff, but if you've got the right web address, it's all just there. I mean, that's it's kind of shocking. Uh, so so there's that. That's that's part of what makes it interesting. Um, I, I think it's also, and I mean, we I, we you and I were on the phone a lot late into the night last night as we were getting ready to run this story and, you know, talking about how and in what way we wanted to report on all of these synodal documents that are in every previous meeting of the Synod of Bishops have been publicly available yeah. because they're in the public interest and they're part yeah. of allowing people to see how the Synod evolves and develops and informs its own view and makes its recommendations to the Holy Father who then, you mm -hmm. know, um, but this time there's, you're not supposed to know all that. And, and so, you know, we've, we were back and forth a lot about, you know, what's the, you know, bearing in mind that Pope Francis, I mean, he is the Pope and the Synod is a thing convened by the Pope. And so he's got a- And we're Catholics. Got, and we are Catholics. And the so Pope has a legitimate- we, have, we wanted to talk about not only questions about sort of our journalistic best practice and journalistic ethics, but like as Catholics, well, how my, did we want to engage this in? We got an interesting cache of documents through perfectly ordinary journalistic means. So I didn't have any- Professional ethical professional questions. concerns at all. I mean, that's just a normal. No, it's thing. just that's right. just the game. That that's yeah. Thursday. Yeah. Um, so that didn't bother me at all. But no, but I mean, Pope Francis has. We are Catholics, and Pope Francis has convened the synod, and he said he wants to convene it in a different way, and he hasn't ordered journalists not to do their job. To Nor their, could he. I mean, if the bishop, if the Pope said journalists don't do your job, I, I would do my job more. <laughs> okay, that's that's an interesting. Glimpse into your. We'll talk about that in the bonus show. Um, no, no, I'm serious. Like, like I, the Pope. Look, I, um, the, there's a limit to the authority. There's an appropriate limit to the authority of the Pontiff, and if the Pontiff exceeded that, the limit of that authority to direct Catholics in their professions to make certain professional choices because he perceived that they were in the best interest of the Church, I would view that to be. A, a, a violation of their own dignity, a, a usurpation of their conscience, and I would regard it as unconscionable. The Pope asked journalists, he said, look, I would like this event to be an event of discernment that doesn't become a synod of the media and doesn't become kind of consumed by politicking, and I would appreciate it if you would exercise a certain kind of restraint. And so we've talked about what does that mean? But there's a limit to that as well, because our own, our responsibility as journalists is to make judgments about what kind of reporting do we do that's in the public interest of the ecclesial society of the church in accord with our conscience, and not what does the Pope want us to do? And it, and and so my point is, if the Pope had said, don't do this, I, I would view that, I, I don't view it as an egregious scandal that the Pope has said, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. I'd appreciate it if you X, Y, or Z, and then we can take that into consideration like human beings. But if the Pope sort of exceeded that and said, don't do this, I, I would view it as a rather egregious um, directive. I, I'm sure. I just, that's, that's not, that's not the room we're in. But you know that. Yeah, that yeah, you do. Um, <laughs> anyway, but that's not the room we're in. Pope Francis no, just merely asked not, journalists. I just wanted to say yeah, that, I know. You, that any consideration I know. of sort of the Pope saying, I would like this to be 
is one factor in a consideration of how best to proceed journalistically in any situation of covering the church, because it is obviously the case that ecclesiastical officials have violated the goodwill and Catholic and 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 devout piety uh, have taken advantage of not the pope, but that ecclesiastical officials have many times in the life of the church taken advantage of the piety of journalists and others who are charged with or have undertaken to safeguard the public interest in order to inappropriately protect the the church or 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 churchmen themselves right um so anyway <laughs> what the pope did do was ask journalists to exercise a certain restraint which in you know as we were talking about it with each other last night figuring out how we wanted to to carry on you know a certain restraint seemed to me and i think to you you know, it's not that you flip through the first four English reports you find and cherry pick the quotes that will upset the most people and get the most clicks and put punt that out like, you know, you're the New York Post or something. Or with no public interest at all, just sort of right. say, well, this is who belonged to every circular minority report as a flex, right? Right. One thing that journalists do often is they report information as a flex to demonstrate we have the power. And you can tell that we have the power because we're telling you something that doesn't really have any it's not important, but we demonstrate to you how much power we have by telling you certain kinds of information. We uh, we assess that it, it is not our vocation as Catholic journalists to flex about what we have, but to make the kind of judgments that journalists right. make about public interest. Right. And and so to weigh, which we're in the process of doing, we haven't by any means finished because it's a lot, like 14 gigabytes, I think. It's a lot of stuff yeah. to go through. But um Anyway, there's there's also the question of evaluating all of that, marrying it up against what, you know, the the synodal communications team are actually telling people, and you know, noting if there's a giant disconnect there. That's one thing, um, but also noticing, you know, they've they've made all these pleas for, uh, you know, discretion and respecting the privacy of participants, and you know, journalists, accredited journalists, the synod of which we both are currently accredited journalists for the synod have been told you may not approach members for interviews. You may not speak to anyone uh, participating in the Synod without the express permission of the Synodal communications team. You can't do that. And sort of evaluating the rest of the room and saying, well, hang on, if these are the rules, is that are these the rules we're playing by? Or is that just sort of a catch me if you can think? Because I mean, I was reading a thing, which right. you sent me today, where it was you know another Catholic publication who ran a sort of composite interview with a series of Synodal participants, so they claimed, um, which quoting them at length, I mean, which know, is fair enough, and saying, you know, they're all anonymous because they're not allowed to speak to the press, but we spoke to them anyway. It's like, okay, but I mean, if if that's how, you know, and I want to see how that um, how that plays out, and you know what the what the synodal comms team do about that and everything, because it seems to me that if you know, if, if it comes about, it's like, well, no, actually, what we mean is the the narrative has to be controlled, and so. Some people are allowed to do that, and other people are not allowed to do that, and everyone else is to sit quietly in the room and take what they're handed. Well, that's not in the public interest, and that's not, you know. Well, you know, M M Cardinal just. Mueller gave an interview just a couple of days after the synod started, and then um, there was he, a journalist. What's that? I mean, I saw the interview a couple of days, after, but I, it was unclear to me when he gave the interview. He gave the interview after the synod started, okay. after the Pope had asked participants not to give interviews. So Cardinal Mueller gave an interview after the Pope had asked, you know, an on-camera interview after the Pope had asked um, participants not to give interviews. And uh, a journalist in the press room asked, um, is Cardinal Mueller subject to some sanction? Are people who give interviews subject to some sanction? And um, Ruffini said, no, you know, that's that's a matter for his own judgment and for his own conscience. He should take the exhortation of the Pope according to his own 
according to his own assessment of it. So it does seem that um, while there has been an encouragement of confidentiality, if you agree, like with an embargo, like, okay, so with an embargo, if you agree, like when you agree to be credentialed at the Holy See, for example, or if you agree to be credentialed at the USCCB or, or, or any other place, right? You put in for a credential, they give you a credential, which says we're going to give you a certain kind of access. But at the same time, we give you a certain kind of access. You're going to agree to respect that when we give you advanced copies of things, which we're doing as a courtesy to you, you are not going to violate the terms under which we give them. We'll give them to you. We'll say you can't report from them. You know, you can't publish something about them until X time. And um, and that's the nature of the agreement, right? It's a quid pro quo. When you put yourself under an embargo or agree to other kinds of quid pro quos, conditions for reporting, things like Chatham House rules or other things, you have a moral obligation to observe them. Um, you don't, I think, have a moral observation to observe if you're covering any kind of assembly, ecclesial or otherwise, and the leader of it says, we'd really like this to be confidential and we think there's some good for it. You can ass- you can assess, is it the case that there is some you know, public good to allowing the thing to proceed without sort of, or, or to seeing the thing proceed without sort of an um, intrusion or something like that. But there's no moral obligation, which is, um, which is incurred by the fact that people say, we don't want you to report about our meeting. But that said, I think we have decided in our view that it's not, what's not appropriate again is to sort of flex um, because we are Catholics and we don't want to sort of just be reporting things which are not of interest, but which might, you know, seem to sort of generate, clicks off, you know, sort of spoiling the, 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 their approach for, for no reason. But I do think a great deal of assessment of what's happening in the Senate, including the documents which the Holy See posted online, is in the public interest in as much as those documents form the basis for the recommendations that will go to the Pope. Well, and are being touted by synodal facilitators and experts and I, what is Austin Ivory calling himself this week? I can't keep up. Um, pig farmer stroke papal buyer i don't whatever um whatever you know what those people doesn't he have a farm now isn't that his new shtick is he's he's got a farm out in the Italian he's not a person i know i follow ah you should it's best 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 comedy in town um anyway uh you know boosters synodal boosters official synodal boosters continue to say, ah, but this is the census fidei being developed here. This is the Holy right, Spirit right, right. speaking and the being Holy revealed in real time. In a definitive way. And, and, and it will be the case. I, I guarantee you this. When the, when the, when the um, midterm report is, is, um, is released, if it is released publicly, um, which is not clear yet, yet whether that will be, or when the final report of recommendations is released, although that thing has no authoritative weight whatsoever, right? The, the, the report is a set of recommendations to the Pope. But when it is released, there will be people who take it as a kind of ecclesial document. We've seen this with other sins in the past, a kind of authoritative synodal document. And 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 say to people whose pastoral practice disagrees with it or whose theological approach disagrees with it, you're contravening this the church Holy document, Spirit. right? And, and in this case, when the thing has been so closely correlated by many official boosters with the Holy Spirit, there will be people who say, you're contravening the will of the Holy Spirit. That will become, I, I'm almost certain, a kind of public pressure placed on people to accept, to assent Absolutely. to whatever the recommendations of the thing are. Even and though the- that will generate, in my opinion, should it happen, and I agree with you on the probability of it happening, but should it happen, that would generate in my mind a compelling public interest to weigh the supposed consensus that led to the synodal document against evidence for said consensus where even, it exists. Even assessing kind of what's been recommended, you know, which is what we're doing now, we're translating and reading these documents and making assessment of those sort of like, what's been recommended and how does that, how does that 
you know, what's been recommended such that we can see later how that impacts the the relatio, the midterm report, is to my mind, you know, a responsible use of the thing. Again, um, absolutely. Sort of, this is who's on which committee, and this is why they were put there. You know, and those kinds of things. Um, I think there is a point at which one is simply showing off that one has the documents. But right. I think, that, or you're just mischief making for the sake of it. And mischief not... making for the sake of mischief making. We know, and we're we're spoiling your parade, um, yeah. and ha ha. But um, but if it is a question of how does this impact the final report, I think that's a totally different story. Yeah, yeah, completely different kettle of bananas. <laughs> I told my pastor the other day. I said to him, "Look, you, I think that you should anticipate that after the relatio comes out, if it reflects a theological paradigm which is different from your own." you should anticipate that there will be people who will bring it to you and say, why are you not embodying the spirit of the synod in this parish? And um, I think there are priests whose bishops will raise those questions. I think there are bishops whose metropolitans will raise those questions. I think that the document, the Relatio document, assuming it's publicly released, which I assume it will be, will be taken as a kind of declaration of the church's direction even before the Pope does the Pope's part, which is to take those recommendations, make an assessment of them, and then promote an apostolic exhortation, which is a kind of reflective encouragement document, which an apostolic exhortation does not in itself bind either. Um, but even in anticipation of what how the Pope responds, I think there will be a lot of spirit of the synod kind of social pressure in the context oh, of the church. Oh, absolutely, because it's being billed not as what it is, which is a papal invite-only focus group. That's what a synod is in the West, in the Latin Church. It's a consultative body convened by an authority for the purposes of getting their advice. Mm -hmm. It's a focus group. Um, but it's been the, the attempts to repackage it as a sort of, you know, shamanistic assembly where if you put the people in the room and you close the doors and you say the magic words and turn three times, then the Holy Spirit is obliged to appear and whatever comes out of, you know, the the drafting committee's fingertips is is the will of god it's like that's it's just nonsense so that's where i hope i think i've actually come around uh in a certain way to um only in sort of reflecting on how will these documents be used have i come around in the, in the past i've said and i still think it's true as a matter of official tude, so to speak as a matter of officialdom the synod's reports will not be important and i think many people say look i don't want to get involved in ecclesial culture war because these things don't have any deliberative weight, and so we don't have to worry about them at all. I do think that we have to recognize that there will be, and I think that the whole sort of rhetoric around the thing demonstrates this, there will be many people who take that document as a kind of litmus test for Catholicity and who use it to assess the Catholicity of others. Yes. And that is worth, I think, paying attention to and taking seriously. I agree. And it's also worth presuming bad faith in them when they do it. I don't think <laughs> I want you I just want you to go to heaven, you know what I'm saying? Uh, look, there's nothing sinful, JD, about saying, "Hey, look at this person doing something in bad faith." That's bad faith. That's that's not sinful. <laughs> I, I I agree, but I think I do think it is virtuous to start with a presumption of good faith, my friend. I did start with a presumption of good faith, but 40 years later, I, my experience has taught me otherwise. You started with a presumption of bad faith, then you were baptized, and you presumed good faith for a little while. And then, you, and, 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 and I prefer, Ed, um, to quote our favorite canonical mentor in a different context, the triumph of hope over experience. <laughs> Fair enough. 
Okay. This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Decided Excellence Catholic Media and their new project, primesoil.com. No manure involved, but to find out what is involved, I strongly urge you, I personally endorse you going to primesoil.com. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and NMJD Production. Our executive producer is Kid Oliveira. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. My podcasting partner is Ed Condon. And uh, our podcast sponsor this week is primesoil.com. Come